0: Welcome to this Touch Podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Hematology. In this podcast, three expert haematologists discuss the management of complications of sickle cell disease, as well as recent advances in therapy. The discussion is guided by pre-canvassed questions provided by healthcare professionals. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from Agios Pharmaceuticals, Inc., Pfizer, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. This activity is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME.
1: Hello, my name is Professor Bari Andamariam, and today I am joined by Professor Mark Walters and Professor Madupe Idowu for this discussion on Contemporary Insights on the Management of Sickle Cell Disease, with a focus on acute and chronic complications, as well as recent advances in therapy. So what are the various manifestations and complications of sickle cell disease? Well, first, in order to appreciate that, you have to understand both the inheritance as well as the epidemiology of sickle cell disease in the United States. Sickle cell disease comprises a group of autosomal recessive disorders, the most common genotype of which is sickle cell anemia, or hemoglobin SS. This most commonly occurs when two parents, each carrying sickle cell trait, uh, has children, and each pregnancy has a 1 in 4 chance of giving rise to a child with the homozygous form of the disease called hemoglobin SS disease. It is important to note that there are other genotypes, including another that is common in the United States called hemoglobin SC disease. Although it is less severe usually in childhood, it can be as severe as hemoglobin SS disease in adulthood. In the United States, it's estimated that 100,000 people live with sickle cell disease. It occurs in about one out of every 365 Black or African-American births. Sickle cell disease is particularly common among people whose ancestors came from regions where malaria is or was prevalent. So what causes the pathophysiology of sickle cell disease? Well, it's about vaso-occlusion, which leads to both acute and chronic complications. There's a single na- nucleotide polymorphism in the beta-globin gene that results in mutated hemoglobin or hemoglobin S. Within the red blood cell, hemoglobin S polymerizes, which causes sickling of the red blood cell as well as hemolysis that leads to profound anemia. And release of components within the hemolyzed red blood cell leads to endothelial dysfunction, the release of cell-free heme, and increased inflammation within the vascular bed. All of these processes give rise to vaso and it's these vaso events that cause the painful episodic crises These can, over time, lead to severe organ damage, as well as increased morbidity and early mortality. So what are the key manifestations of sickle cell disease? These include neurological, oral, respiratory, cutaneous, renal, hepatic, skeletal, ocular, endocrine, cardiovascular, digestive, reproductive, muscular, and of course, hematological complications. I now turn to our panel. The questions that I'm about to ask have been uh, canvassed from our target audience. First, I'll go to you, Professor Walters. How is sickle cell disease diagnosed and should screening be performed on just certain people or do you diagnose based on specific symptoms?
0: Thank you, uh, Professor Andamiriam. The, the diagnosis of sickle cell disease is based on the change in the amino acid sequence. So, there at position six, there's a swap of valine for glutamic acid, and this uh, single amino acid change can be detected when the protein hemoglobin is analyzed by electrophoresis. So, that's as the classical way to make the diagnosis, and also because it can be detected based on its migration by HPLC, this is a more rapid and precise method for making the diagnosis. Um, Finally, it can be diagnosed by modern genomic testing. Initially, uh, newborn screening was performed in a targeted manner, that is, uh, based on one's identification to a particular ethnic group, uh, for example, black Americans. But um, uh, what we learned, what was learned uh, initially was that this was an inappropriate uh, method in that, in fact, universal screening is the only way to accurately screen a a population. So universal newborn screening is now performed in all 50 states in in the United States.
1: Thank you, Professor Walters. Now Professor Idowu, what are the most common acute complications of sickle cell disease that we expect to see in patients, and are there any factors that exacerbate these complications?
2: Yes, um, the major acute manifestations of sickle cell disease are related to infection due to functional esplenia, anemia, and visal occlusion. And visal occlusion, of course, can be acute painful episode, acute chest syndrome, and priapism, and of course, acute splenic sequestration, acute liver sequestration, and others. Many of these complications are potentially life-threatening. And um, in terms of in, um, infections, of course, many of the things that can exacerbate this um, could just be that, of course, these patients are functionally asplenic and that if they are dehydrated and they're exposed to people that, are, um, that have infection. Um, So it is important that we keep our patients um, very well hydrated and that they are, um, you know, they're wearing masks um, when they're close to people that have signs of infection. And um, in terms of acute painful episodes, certain patients, um, individuals, um, they're prone to having these episodes when they have extreme changes in whether it's humidity or temperatures. Uh, So they know their triggers. We we tell them to be aware of this and avoiding the triggers. With acute chest um, syndrome, um, when patients have asthma, history, they're prone to having um, episodes, more episodes of acute chest syndrome, or probably um, they have infection in the lungs. Or maybe they come in with chest pain because chest is... um, a site of pain for most of our individuals with sickle cell. And if they're not breathing properly because of the chest pain, um, they can develop acute chest.
1: Thank you, Professor Idowu. Now, turning back to you, Professor Walters, what are the neurologic complications of sickle cell disease? And in particular, can you explain the incidence of stroke and which types of patients have a high risk for having a stroke?
0: Yes, thank you. So th- there are three primary neurological complications in sickle cell disease. Uh, the first of these is a- overt stroke, either caused by thrombosis or uh, or hemorrhagic stroke. Um, the-, the second is silent cerebral infarction, and then the third, pervasive, is um, is a neurovascular disease that's subclinical but causes uh, neurocognitive deficits and. Uh, from the natural history studies, we learned that there appeared uh, in the 1980s and 90s two peak incidences of stroke in persons with sickle cell disease. The first occurred in childhood and, in fact, before the institution of uh, screening for stroke by transcranial Doppler ultrasound, uh, this was the leading cause of stroke in children having sickle cell disease. With institution of screening procedures, the incidence of stroke and childhood has decreased, but still hasn't been eliminated. The second peak uh, in the natural history study was in uh, early adulthood in the 20s and 30s, where hemorrhagic strokes appeared to be more common. The The interventions for stroke prevention is the institution of irregular transfusions, and there are data both uh, for transcranial doppler ultrasound uh, screen positive individuals, as well as those with silent stroke that regular red blood cell transfusions, decrease the progression of neurovascular disease, but unfortunately do not eliminate it completely.
1: Thank you, Professor Walters. Now, Professor Udowu, let's talk about another organ system. What are the cardiac manifestations of sickle cell disease? Are patients actually more likely to have heart failure, or do they need regular cardiovascular monitoring when they have sickle cell disease?
2: Cardiac complications, uh... A common and often unrecognized cause of morbidity and mortality in sickle cell disease, um, and are major cause of death in adult patients, um, cardiomyopathy and heart failure, in fact, also myocardial infarction, dysrhythmia, and sudden death, are all included, um, and. Cardiomyopathy is increasingly being identified in individuals with sickle cell disease, especially left-sided diastolic dysfunction, both uh, with and without concomitant pulmonary hypertension. Potentially contributing um, factors um, may include chronic anemia with hypoxia and could also be because of the, um, you know, transfusional ion overload especially in the older individuals, hypertension, alterations in the intravascular volume. Um, But um, because of that left-sided diastolic dysfunction that now we now recognize better, especially in the um, the aging population, I think we do need to be screening our individuals uh, with sickle cell um, anemia. There are different types of screening. Um, echocardiography, EKG screening should be yearly, and of course more often if they have um, dysrhythmias. Um, and but this um, patients or individuals with sickle cell disease definitely have um, serious cardiac manifestations that we should be screening and monitoring for on a regular basis.
1: Thank you, Professor Yudowu, for, you know, covering so comprehensively the cardiac manifestations of sickle cell disease, something I think we don't talk about enough. Now, changing gears a bit, Professor Walters, uh, how does sickle cell disease and its complications affect patients' quality of life? Now, do they have a lower than average life expectancy in addition to changes in their quality of life as compared to the general population in the United States?
0: Yes, I think this is best. Uh, this has been best studied using uh, patient-reported outcome instruments, which clearly show an overall decreased quality of life, health-related quality of life in individuals who inherit sickle cell disease compared with the general population. And in particular, domains such as sleep disturbance and pain interference are are affected adversely. Um, another Complication, A neuropsychiatric complication that is common is uh, anxiety and depression. And these two, uh, as you might predict, adversely, adversely affect the quality of life. There, there is a significant decrement in lifespan for individuals who inherit sickle cell disease that persists even today. And uh, in fact, there's a 30-year decrement in lifespan. So, so even today, this is what we describe as a health disparity. And and there are important reasons why the health disparity has has occurred and it has to do largely with inadequate resources both in research and in supportive care, competent care, across the lifespan for this disorder in the United States.
1: I think this has been a really important discussion that shows us the importance of universal screening to identify babies with sickle cell disease in our country as soon as possible. And I think very importantly, we're highlighting the fact that the quality of life of individuals with sickle cell disease is far less than the average American, and that the life expectancy is uh, more than 30 years shorter than the average American, and there's certainly room for improvement. So what are the practical considerations for the multidisciplinary management of sickle cell disease-related complications? Well, it's important to note that it really takes a dedicated team whose effort collectively can have positive outcomes. The team that takes care of individuals with sickle cell disease should be comprised of a core team as well as an extended team. The core team should include a hematologist for adults or a pediatric hematologist for children, a primary care physician or pediatrician, an emergency medicine physician for those acute complications that require presentation to the emergency department, a nurse practitioner or physician extender, as well as a social worker who can help with the mental health aspects of living with the condition, and if possible, a pharmacist who is well-versed in the potential interactions between medications. The extended team includes subspecialists such as neurologists, nephrologists, hepatologists, psychiatrists for those patients who may be exhibiting uh, complications such as anxiety or depression, and dentists as well. So now we'll move to our panel discussion. Starting with you, Professor Idowu, what should physicians in the emergency department be aware of in terms of the most likely reasons for patients with sickle cell disease to present to the emergency room, and how approach to these common medical emergencies should be taken?
2: Thank you for that question. Yes, the most likely reason that patient presents to the ED is for acute painful episodes. And providers should believe the patient's report and listen in terms of the medications that have previously worked for them. We should be careful not to label the patients as drug-seeking, but quickly attend to them and triage them for signs and symptoms of medical emergencies. This episodes typically represents life-threatening complications um, and Usually, it has begun and it's already in progress by the time they present to the ED. Um, It is important to check labs, including blood counts, hemolysis labs, chemistry. Do cultures to rule out infections in these patients who present with fever because patients with sickle cell disease are prone to having infections and we know that when they present with vessel occlusive episodes they also can have the other complications such as acute chest syndrome which is a vessel occlusive event they can have multi organ dysfunction or failure and they can also have strokes so if they have headaches or pain in unusual places they should probably have head imaging abdominal pain and not their usual site of pain, they should do imaging of the abdomen, and of course, chest and so on and so forth to rule out other medical emergencies. So we do have to approach them um, quickly in the emergency room and they should be triaged very quickly when they present with this acute painful episode or other um, symptoms.
1: Thank you, Professor Idowu. Now, turning to you, Professor Walters, which members of the multidisciplinary team are best suited to manage the acute and chronic pain that individuals with sickle cell disease experience?
0: Yes, I think in answering this question, the emphasis should be appropriately on multidisciplinary team. Um, the, the acute pain of sickle cell disease uh, uh, classically is caused by acute occlusion, which leads to uh, local tissue ischemia and, and pain pain that can be quite severe. In fact, it's been uh, rated more severe than typical post-operative pain. And for this type of pain, analgesics are the pillar of, of therapy. Now, uh, the delivery of, uh, of managing, uh, the delivery of and managing acute painful episodes, uh, we have found is is best accomplished by uh, a pain treatment plan, an individualized pain treatment plan that might be uh, initiated in the emergency department where the patient presents, and then extended through uh, hospitalization and eventually discharged home. Chronic pain of sickle cell disease is is quite different. It can be neuropathic and uh, affect the nociceptive pain pathways, and so uh, integrative multimodal therapies are most effective. So, in addition to analgesics, uh, this would include things such as. Uh, um, behavioral therapy, uh, acupressure, acupuncture. And so it is the institution of these uh, multimodal therapies that has been most effective in managing chronic pain. And in addition, uh, incorporating pain specialists and a chronic pain clinic into the of care for uh, in particular adolescents and young adults with sickle cell disease where chronic pain syndromes are most common.
1: I'd like to now turn to Professor Udowu. Now, are there also some special considerations for the multidisciplinary team to be aware of when managing women with sickle cell disease who are pregnant?
2: Yes, um, it is important to um, manage pregnant women uh, with sickle cell in a multidisciplinary manner uh, because certain complications in sickle cell can look a little bit similar to uh, complications in pregnancy, such as preeclampsia, eclampsia, eclampsia. Um, sometimes if a woman with sickle cell have neurologic changes um, from cerebral vascular disease, from sickle cell complication, um, they can be mistaken as having eclampsia. So, um, it is important to really communicate as a hematologist uh, very closely with the OB with a high-risk OB team and also to have individualized pain management plan uh, for the for the individual that is pregnant with sickle cell and communicate that very broadly with a multidisciplinary team. Um, it is also important to know when to transfuse a patient uh, with sickle cell during pregnancy. That should be communicated very clearly. Um, and to make sure to also have the uh, care team available to the OB team. Um, I think we cannot underestimate what that can offer to the, uh, to the OB team and how much they will appreciate that. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Professor Idowu. Uh, Professor Walters, what are the main differences when managing children with sickle cell disease compared with adults, and what is the process for transitioning from pediatric to adult care?
0: Yes, that's a challenging question to answer. What's the difference between children and adults? I could go on and on about that. But let's just say uh, a common moniker among pediatricians is is that children are not small adults. So so they require specialized care. Um, the, the other thing I've observed over the years that uh, with young families with small children with sickle cell disease, medical adherence is less of an issue uh, because they're under the care of, uh, caring uh, protective parents for uh, for for the large part. Uh, as as the children get older, uh, enter adolescence. Uh, issues of autonomy and independence take over, where medical adherence can be more challenging. And so uh, this transition from relying on supervision from parent or care provider uh, to independence and adult care is a very tricky transition. So. Uh, uh, a popular theme that's developing is the notion of lifespan care—that a comprehensive sickle cell disease program should institute care across the lifespan. the The transition is challenged in the United States by the uh, by the sad fact that there are a limited number of competent practitioners who who can deliver uh, adult care. And so, I think this is uh, an important challenge uh, as we move to the future.
1: Professor Dewu. What is the best practice for coordinating care for patients with sickle cell disease in general across the multidisciplinary team? How do you coordinate that?
2: This cannot be, you know, um, overlooked at all. It is very important to have a multidisciplinary team for individuals with sickle cell. And I think the best practice is to have a primary care provider, hematology provider, um, you know, advanced. Uh, practice providers available for our patients, specialized nursing staff, a social worker, community health worker, you know, pharmacists, all those that you've listed. Um, It is important to also have a behavioral health team. Um, It is also important to have regularly scheduled meetings uh, with this multidisciplinary team. And we should also mention that we should have transition team with the pediatric team that we, we get our patients, adult patients from. So we should have good collaboration with a pediatric team in our area so that these adolescent patients are being transitioned over to us in a smooth and of manner.
1: I think this has been such an important discussion introducing the concept of the importance of multidisciplinary care in every facet of individuals with sickle cell disease lives. And that begins from the time that they're diagnosed, hopefully as a newborn, all through the lifespan into hopefully late adulthood. And I think that that's the take-home message is that multidisciplinary care is uh, a high standard of care and should be implemented widely as much as possible. So what does the evidence for established and novel therapies tell us about the prospects for patients with sickle cell disease? Well, first let's talk about the established therapies for sickle cell disease. There are four. Uh, the first is blood transfusion. It dilutes circulating sickled red blood cells with unaffected red blood cells in order to increase the oxygen-carrying capacity of the blood. Deferoxamine and deferasirox are iron chelation therapies that are approved to reduce the iron overload due to chronic transfusional therapy. Hydroxyurea was approved in 1998 by the Food and Drug Administration for its ability to prevent painful crises, first in adults, later approved in children. Allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation is, to date, the only curative therapy for sickle cell disease, and the first person with sickle cell disease was transplanted in 1984. There are also recently approved therapies for sickle cell disease, There are four that have been recently approved since 2017. The first of which is L-glutamine, approved for its ability to reduce painful crisis episodes in individuals at least five years of age. Buxellator is approved in individuals four years of age or older. It works by increasing hemoglobin's affinity for oxygen and thereby reducing hemoglobin S polymerization. It therefore improves anemia by reducing hemolysis. Crizenlizumab is approved for individuals at least 16 years of age and also reduces the annualized rate of pain crises. Diferoprone was recently approved for sickle cell disease in 2021 in individuals as young as 3 years of age who have iron overload due to transfusional therapy. There are also many investigational therapies for sickle cell disease. And the goals of these emerging treatments are either disease modifying or curative intent. The curative intent investigational therapies are largely gene therapies. And there are two main approaches. One is gene addition and one is gene editing. There are also pyruvate kinase activators that are being studied in clinical trials in sickle cell disease which work by increasing ATP and decreasing 2,3-DPG in red blood cells, which then reduces hemoglobin S polymerization. And there are two in clinical trials now, etabopivate and midopivate. And lastly, there are also DNA methyltransferase inhibitors that are being studied. These increase hemoglobin F expression via G reactivation. And one example of this is NDEC. I now turn to our panel and I will ask some questions that have been pre-canvassed from our target audience. Professor Walters, what is your opinion on the risk-benefit profile for the established therapies for sickle cell disease, such as blood transfusions, hydroxyurea, iron chelators, and stem cell transplantation, and do the benefits outweigh the risks?
0: So I tend to think of these comparisons in terms of short-term and long-term risks and benefits. In the short term, uh, disease-modifying supportive care treatments such as blood transfusions, hydroxyurea uh, transfusions with the use of iron chelators are much safer than a curative intent therapy such as stem cell transplantation. Uh, Stem cell transplantation carries risks of graft versus host disease and graft rejection, which together increase the short-term mortality Alternatively, blood transfusions hydroxyurea uh, extend uh, an important benefit. Uh, they reduce pain, they reduce hospitalization, um, and, and uh, are very safe uh, in the short term and, uh, and extend lifespan. Um, so do the benefits outweigh the risks? I think for some persons with sickle cell disease who are experiencing a lot of health problems. Uh, A transplant or other curative therapy is something that is worth the risk. Uh, Other individuals who have had a good response to transfusions or hydroxyurea and uh, and don't uh, wish to take on additional risk or disruptive uh, going through a disruptive uh, intensive therapy. In that situation, the benefit of a transplant does not weigh there is so. Uh, this is an individual decision-making approach that uh, each family and, and person who has sickle cell disease has to think through carefully.
1: Thank you, Professor Walters. Now, Professor Idowu, what is the evidence for the more recently approved therapeutic options for sickle cell disease, such as chrysalizumab, L-glutamine, and voxelotor? Do the clinical data match with your experience in your clinic?
2: Yes, the evidence for the recently approved therapies—they um, do match with my experience um, at the at the clinic. For uh we know that it was approved based on uh, the Sustain um, trial, which was a phase two trial, um, and it enrolled patients um, of age sixteen to sixty five. It showed um, about 45% reduction um, in sickle cell pain crisis in the uh, five milligram per kilogram dose of chrysolizumab uh, versus placebo. And in those taking hydroxyurea, it showed 32% versus placebo reduction in sickle cell pain crisis. And um, in terms of the safety profile for crizolizumab, it's just basically showed a couple of few patients with infusion reaction. Uh, which wasn't um, severe. And um, talking about um, voxelitol, this has been approved for patients um, older than all four years and older based on Hope Trier. And we now have up to 72-week study, uh, phase three um, study, which showed that it's still, I mean, safe for this patient and it's now approved um, for younger patients, and it's raised uh, hemoglobin um, and decreased hemolysis. Um, it doesn't really show significantly improvement um, in patients uh, with um supplusive prices, um, and it's important to note that for L-glutamine, a you know, phase 3 trial that showed a reduction in pain crisis, about 25% reduction in patients on L-glutamine compared to placebo, and uh, about a third reduction in hospitalization, and also some reduction in acute chest syndrome in the patients on L-glutamine.
1: Thank you. Uh, Professor Odobu, I would like to ask you a follow-up question. So how and when should the more novel therapies for sickle cell disease be used?
2: Everyone should be offered hydroxyurea, um, you know, as long as they're older than six months old. Um, or if they're severely anemic and they have eye hemolysis at steady state and they're at risk for, because they're at risk for multi-organ failure, even if they don't have frequent um, sickle cell pain episodes, they should be offered medications such as Voxelidol. If they are not able to take Voxelidol, then maybe they should be offered clinical trial medications such as pyruvate kinase Activator or others that will increase hemoglobin and decrease hemolysis. And for patients that tend to have more frequent visoclusive episodes and chronic pain or priapism, can consider offering prizalizumab, especially for the priapism uh, frequent pain episodes. And if they have frequent visoclusive episodes, um, and they're into natural remedies, they will not take any other medications, uh, can consider giving L-glutamine. If they have more of acute syndrome and they've tried other things, you can add on L-glutamine, even if they're on other therapies.
1: So I think what I'm hearing from the both of you is the importance of uh, patient characteristics and, and having the patient characteristics uh, help tailor decision-making. And I'm going to turn now to you, Professor Walters. I don't think we can get more patient-specific in our discussion <laughs> uh, without uh, you know, talking about gene therapy. So, what are the latest updates on gene and cellular therapies for sickle cell disease?
0: So, exocell relies on CRISPR technology and uh, targets, in a precise way, a location in the BC-11 gene, an erythroid-specific enhancer that inactivates that gene just in the erythroid lineage. So this is a precise, precise therapy that effectively induces fetal hemoglobin in the 35 or so patients who've received uh, this therapy in clinical trial. Uh, cell alternatively, is, is, as you pointed out, a gene addition. So it introduces a anti-sickling globin gene that's delivered through a lentiviral vector. The lentiviral vector integrates in thousands of different locations. And in fact, two of the first seven patients enrolled in the phase one trial were bone marrow and peripheral blood stem cells was the source of making blood product, those patients developed AML, acute myelogical leukemia, that was fatal in both cases. But it raises a more global concern that are these cell and gene therapies going to be accompanied by a higher risk of developing uh, a severe form of leukemia. So uh, on the other side, uh, the similarities are that they're both highly effective, uh, although intensive therapies. Both rely on ablation, that is the use of a single dose of to clear space for the gene-modified cells to engraft. And while that's accompanied by the usual types of complications one associates with that kind of treatment, such as uh mucositis pain, uh cytopenias, risk of infection, and so forth, uh, there is full recovery generally within six months, and and quite dramatically a reduction in, in severe pain. So both, both trials have, have shown about a 90% reduction in in severe vasoclusive episodes that result in hospitalization. So uh, the thing that we can hold up is that this is, appears to be highly effective in what appears to be a curative outcome. Uh, the risk is that I don't think all of the long-term risks have been defined, but, uh, but that's where we are with the technology. And I'm excited to say that I think uh, it appears that both of these products will be FDA approved and commercially available in, in the next uh, 12 months or so.
1: Well, that would certainly be exciting, and thank you for uh, simplifying a very complicated uh, area of sickle cell disease. Uh, you know, pipeline therapeutics for us, Professor Ndowu, What can you tell us about the developmental status of the pyruvate kinase activators etavopivat and midopivat for sickle cell disease, and are there any recent updates on their efficacy and safety profiles?
2: Etavopivat is already in the phase three trial, um, but um, the safety profile um, is pretty uh, good. So far, there was a grade uh, three um, on a patient that developed uh, COVID, COVID and had pneumonia from that, and also a grade three uh, DVT with uh, the publication that was um, on their phase one trial. But uh, patients um, that were enrolled on the previous trial that was published had um, on average, a mean hemoglobin increase of about 1.2 with a maximum um, hemoglobin increase of about 1.5. And there was um, decreased hemolysis and increased red blood cell lifespan. Uh, with Metapivat, the phase two uh, rise-up study um, actually um, met the primary efficacy endpoint. And uh, 46% of patients in the 50 milligram BID pivot arm, and 50% of patients in 100-milligram BID metapivot arm achieved the hemoglobin response compared to 3.7% of patients in placebo arm. And there was a trend in sickle cell pain reduction um, in uh, both metapivot uh, dose arm.
1: So... That was a fantastic discussion. I think what we're learning today is that the established therapies that have been long-standing part of our our treatment for patients with sickle cell disease, like hydroxyurea and transfusional therapy, are not going away. And hopefully their use is being expanded to larger and larger numbers of individuals with sickle cell disease. And we're also learning that this is an exciting time with four FDA-approved drugs just in the past several years, and a lot of treatments in the pipeline, both um, disease modifying therapies as well as potential curative intent therapies such as gene therapy. So, I want to thank both Professor Mark Walters and Professor Madube Adobu for joining this discussion on contemporary insights on the management of sickle cell disease with a focus on complications as well as recent advances in therapy. I also want to thank you, the audience, for watching. We very much hope that it has been useful for you.
0: Thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access more content on this and related topics on Touch Hematology at www.touchhematology.com.